fresh and Welcome back to another episode of Fresh and Buds. I'm your host, Tommy Fresh. And as always, you are all of my buds. And today we have a great episode for you all. We're going to be joined by Brian Gottlieb, who's going to hop on here in a few. And uh, we're going to talk about all kinds of fun stuff. We're going to learn about them. We're going to talk about design. We're going to get, you know, uh, a little look into the brain uh, behind a, a lot of all of our favorite cards in Flesh and Blood. So it's going to be a blast. But uh, before we do all of that, I do want to give a shout out to the Patreon, which you can find in the show notes, help keep the lights on the mics hot, get a little rewards out of it as well. Very cool. Uh, every little bit helps. I also want to shout out the Buds Discord, which is a great safe space to hang out. A lot of great Buds in there, uh, which is free to join as always. And then um, if you're watching this on YouTube, give us a little like, comment, subscribe, uh, comment something wild. Maybe uh, we'll start a new segment called Listener of the Week, where if you comment something crazy, you might just make it. Uh, and once we get to 500 subscribers, as always, the um, the big Leviah adult cosplay is going to happen. Very cool, very cool. Um, and also on Wednesdays, 9.30 Eastern, we do the Bud Rush Bellow with Mr. Vizzy, a.k.a. Gary. As always, producer Greg is on the scene. He's probably going to drop something right here. Wow, that was so great, Greg. And we have a special message from Charmer, uh, which we didn't get to last week, uh, this week. So uh, without further ado, let's jump to Brian. All right. Well, we are here with, well, Mr. Brian Gottlieb himself. How are you doing, buddy? Uh, I'm doing well. Welcome to my mahogany fortress where i host all my favorite podcasting friends i know flake is always very excited whenever he gets welcome into my mahogany fortress now you also have the password you're able to visit whenever you want oh i love it i love it it looks like unbelievably cozy and uh i'm, gonna, I'm not gonna lie i'm a little jealous because it's, it's very wooden uh and there's ups and downs that come with that i will say like there is a good cozy vibe going uh there's also like bees and woodpeckers trying to eat my house all the time so it's like a give and take you, you get a little bit of both sides sure sure I, yeah we're always in a, a constant battle with nature uh, you know maybe it's because uh, we're living in their world or, or probably true yeah yeah but uh well we you know I'm, I'm happy that you are here to join us and we're gonna have a nice little chat uh you know i've been looking forward to this and uh, you know, uh, I think we're all pretty excited about flesh and blood right now and, and everything coming down the pipe. So, uh, before we get to any, uh, real flesh and blood talk, I do want to get a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, background on your history, which is a long history with tr trading card games. Wait, so, you calling me, uh, I thought you were calling me old for a second there. Okay, oh no, no. I just, yeah, uh, wise. It would be appropriate. It'd be fun. <laughs> wise and, 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 and experienced, I think is, is where we're going. High leveled. Grizzled. Um, I prefer grizzled. <laughs> grizzled. Yeah. Um, now you, you do have this long history with TCGs, um, a grizzled history with TCGs. Yep. Um, before we, uh, you know, get to Fab, where did card games come into your life? Uh, day one, pretty much. I mean, like I, I wasn't there for the alpha days of Magic, but I was there very soon after. You know, seven or eight months into its life cycle, it just found its way across my purview, and uh, kind of not to be over dramatic about it, but it felt like a missing part of myself joined me at that point like it was just the thing i had been looking for my whole life i was instantly obsessed uh you know playing magic every second i could and thinking about magic every second i couldn't play and you know it certainly weaved in and out of my life after that initial introduction you know i grew up a little bit went to high school went to college pretty into girls at that point. So that kind of, you know, you take a step <laughs> back from magic for a second, but it was always there in the background, always keeping track of it. And then, you know, I dabbled with poker for a bit and that kind of uh, stepped in front of magic for a bit, but always there was these TCGs in the background, keeping my attention. And it wasn't just magic. It was every TCG that was being released. I just wanted to know everything about them. I wanted to know rules, how they functioned, you know, what other concepts were exciting in the TCG world. And it's pretty much continued for 30 years now. I've been living my life that way. It's pretty awesome to hear that. Now, what is it about TCGs and just like physical card games and, and, and beyond that really, you know, makes you so excited about them? Yeah, there's something, you know, unique, tangible 
uh, real about TCGs. Like, I, I also love video games, don't get me wrong, and video gaming is a huge part of my life. And, you know, uh, I think a lot of the things I said about TCGs could very much apply to video games, but there is that element of just holding this piece in my hand and kind of like respecting it and cherishing it. And I, I guess like collectability matters to me. Like I like having cool stuff to add to my collection. That's certainly part of it. But I, I think probably more than that. And you have to go back to the era at which I found TCGs. It was the concept of the evolving metagame. Like now we have video games that do have evolving metagames. Certainly things like League of Legends, Teamfight Tactics, fighting games, any game essentially at this point mm-hmm. has an evolving metagame. But that was not the case back in 1994. It was kind of a very unique concept to magic and, you know, maybe a little bit in the RPG world. There's certainly a constant set of expansions coming. But for me, for me, like magic was my first exposure to the idea of a metagame and a constantly evolving game that just always offered something new. And I think that's what really tickled my brain in the right way. Yeah, in a lot of ways, you get this set thing that is very, very fun, but still changes every single time you play it and every single time, you know, whatever developer decides to put out something new. And and uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, th- that is a great point. I had never really thought about video games that way where, you know, when I was younger, right, you just played the game, right? And it, it didn't change, you know? <laughs> and then and now, like, you know, every single time I log into a game, it's like, well, we have this big update for you. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, it's a very different world, for sure. Yeah. Now, uh, what were your initial aspirations as, as a card gamer, you know? Because um, it's been a, a, a long history with it, you know, where where were your expectations with the games? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, like for me, I grew up in such a small sheltered place. I, I lived in the middle of nowhere in rural upstate New York. We uh, could occasionally get some TCG cards from a waterbed store about 30 minutes from my house. Don't ask me why the waterbed store <laughs> was selling cards, but they did. Uh, but beyond that, it was like to get to another place where there were actually people playing and engaging with these games hour and a half, two hours. Nobody in my, my circle, short of my little brother, who I kind of indoctrinated into the world, was interested in TCGs. So it never seemed like something that could become a large part of my life. I was never like, oh, I'll be a pro tour player. or it, it just seemed like a very distant goal. But certainly, you know, I grow up, I move on, I, I move out of that small world. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was aware of competitive magic as it existed in the early days, but it wasn't something I endeavored to. It was only when I re-engaged with the game years later, in about 2007-ish, I moved to Las Vegas at that point, and I had been playing poker prior to that, so I was very much into like the competing tournament scene, and I just was done with poker, I wanted something else, and Magic started scratching that same itch, and, uh, you know, dabbling in PTQs, I qualified for a pro tour at my first ever magic gp and i didn't really think like i i was going to be a pro tour player but then i kind of got a taste of it and i'm like oh i like this i want to do it again and while it never became my priority it was always there in the background and just something i like dabbled with from time to time and uh you know built this weird network of people who are interested in what i was thinking and what i was doing in the tcg space without ever really being like I want to make this happen. This has to be a thing for me. And certainly it was always in the background. Like I was working my jobs. I was going to law school, becoming a lawyer. All, all these things are like happening in the forefront. And it's always this thing in the background that's just kind of uh, taunting me, calling me as like <laughs> almost what feels like it's supposed to be my real purpose. But it's just not the thing like I'm telling myself to engage with. Um, and, and so I, I guess my that's a long winded way of saying I didn't have any expectations when it came to TCGs. It was just something I did. And whatever happened, happened. It's it's almost as if TCGs had uh, expectations for you, rather. That's an interesting <laughs> way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's, it's almost like some kind of predestined thing, uh, it, it seems, anyway. Because, you know, I, I you know when, when you go do life things, like, I feel the same way, right? Like, the, the, the card games that never left, but they were always there. So, I, I totally understand that. Now... Speaking of card games, Flesh and Blood, now you say you, you've you've tried to keep up with new card games whenever they come out. Flesh and Blood comes onto the scene. When did you start uh, learning about Flesh and Blood, getting into it, and, and uh, bringing us to where you are now? Yeah, so I, I was certainly hearing rumbles about Flesh and Blood, like uh, a lot of 
the creators overlapped. It was coming across my Twitter feeds. It was on my websites, you know, Channel Fireball, reading magic articles and here's something about flesh and blood. And I didn't really make much of it. There's, there's just been a lot of games that come and go. And, you know, I, like I said, I like to familiarize myself, but my expectation is most of them. I, I'll actually say I expect none of them to become a large part of my life the way magic was. And nothing ever had. I had played every game, but I had never played a tournament for a game besides Magic the Gathering in my entire life until I played my first Flesh and Blood tournament, uh, you know, a little over a year and a half ago now. And so it it wasn't like I was expecting it to be like, oh, this is my new thing. But, you know, I, I familiarized myself with it about the time they announced their first pro circuit. And I'm like, well, what's going on here? You know, is there something interesting? And my own relationship with Magic at that point was complicated. Uh, you know, I had been working as a content creator uh, through my own podcast. I was writing articles for Star City Games. I was broadcasting Magic tournaments for Star City Games and Things were kind of in the midst of the pandemic. Everything was very uncertain, very fraught with uh, peril, I would say. It seemed like <laughs> a lot of things were not going the way I expected them to with magic. And I wasn't searching for something new, but I was open to it. And I was just like, I'll, I'll play this game, see what's up. And uh, I fell in love. Imme like it was just a, a well, not immediately. I played my first ever games were with the Monarch Blitz decks. Okay. And I played a Prism versus uh, Leviah matchup. And I was like, well, this game doesn't seem very good. But for whatever reason, I kept going. And uh, yes, then I fell very quickly in love as I explored more and like started to get into classic constructed and, you know, exploring Blitz a little bit. And as soon as I escaped the prison of those modern Blitz decks, I felt very good about what was going on. And I just dove in wholeheartedly. I ordered basically every card in the game, started building decks, uh, you know, I, not really having a scene in my area, just playing again with my little brother and uh, eventually getting to play my first flesh and blood tournament when I went to an SCG con, uh, kind of the first SCG con after the pandemic down in Roanoke. And I was there mostly to like I was qualified for the SCG Invitational as a content creator. So I was there mostly to play magic, but I didn't really care that much about magic. And I did very poorly in the magic event. And then day two rolls around and there's a flesh and blood ptq and i'm like i definitely want to play this and after that i was like oh this is actually just the game i want to be playing like this is where i am focused now this is what i want to do and things very quickly spiraled after that you know it's it's kind of funny you are not the first and I, i'm sure you will not be the last person i talk to uh who who, <laughs> who shares the same experience with the monarch blitz decks um it, it seems to be a common theme but it does speak to the the power of flesh and blood that that uh a lot of us can move past the the leviathan yeah. versus prism matchup and in, in that there was there's was a lot of good stuff there like you, you could see like there's something i was like this this can't be the game like there's something more something is wrong with what i'm experiencing i need to understand better uh and i'm glad i did yeah now um beyond that like what were your initial thoughts on the the game engine itself right you know what was it about this game that kind of really uh dug its claws into you uh that that, that no other game had except for magic yeah it just stood out to me as a very well thought out well designed game that was evocative and that's the main thing that i really felt had been missing from magic for a while. You know, when I first found magic, it was this weird mystical spell book of cards where you were summoning dragons and angels and all these fantasy tropes that like I was really into at the time. And certainly my tastes evolved over time, but what never really left me was the desire to have stories told through these cards. Like I, I wanted them to feel correct. I wanted them to represent something to feel like I was engaging with something bigger than just pieces of cardboard. And flesh and blood was just doing that to a ludicrous degree, like just a really, really focused approach to storytelling via card, to having uh, a game system that allows you to tell whatever stories you want to tell through its rules. And that's what was so, so exciting to me because you know, I play something, and like I said, I've played almost every TCG. I, I play Yu-Gi-Oh! I don't get anything from that. Like, there's numbers being thrown back and forth. And I don't think the game is bad. Like, I enjoy playing a game of Yu-Gi-Oh! every now and then, but I don't get the resonance. I play the Pokemon game. I don't actually feel like I'm doing Pokemon training. Like, there's no real representation of this really cool concept within the cards to me. And I think that is something that, like, almost every TCG ever has fallen short on for me. 
uh, versus system is another one that comes to mind where it just like, I didn't feel like I was doing superhero stuff. It was just like, here's the rules and flesh and blood was the exact opposite. It felt like they started with the foundation first with the storytelling first, and then had a beautiful rules engine to work on top of that. And it, it just seemed legit and it seemed real. And I, I trusted my gut in terms of like, I think this is something special and I'm very glad I did. Yeah, yeah, and we're all very glad you did too because, uh, you know, we'll get to it in a bit, but you've been doing some work uh, with LSS and, and, and the product has been uh, amazing. But before we get to that, I do want you mentioned broadcasting. Um, a couple weeks back, we were joined by Craig Kremples, a, a local bud of, of mine and, uh, and, and someone you've, you've shared the, the coverage booth with in the past. Uh, how did you end up doing TCG coverage and how have you liked doing it for Flesh and Blood? I wish like like all these questions I wish I just like had a good answer <laughs> but it's all just like dumb luck and I know the right people and I'm like I tell someone hey I want to do this thing and they're like uh oh, what the hell we'll give you a shot for whatever reason people like giving me shots at things I don't know why um <laughs> but I I think I tend to do pretty well when given shots and I tend to deliver on them and uh, I got this shot to do m- magic well first I got an offer from my good friend Jerry Thompson to come do his already popular magic podcast. So I stepped in that role and we did very well with that. And then I parlayed that into a writing gig with star city, just kind of saying, Hey, I want to expand on what we're talking about in the podcast. Do you have a platform for me again? Just asking and being told yes. And doing that. And then once I was doing that, I was like, well, man, you guys do the SCG tour. I feel like I'm good at this. I talk a lot about magic. I think I can do this. What do you think about giving me a shot to do this? And then sure enough, my buddy Cedric says yes. And that I'm doing magic broadcasting. So uh, as far as how uh, I got into it, dumb luck and asking. That's that's really all I can say. Knowing the right people, like that's some of it too. Yeah. Well, you know, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, right? And and uh, that's true. that certainly, you know, is proven here. And But what about Flesh and Blood? How have you liked doing uh, coverage for, for Flesh and Blood? Because it's certainly a different, you know, world, right? Certainly yeah, I, still. I, um, I love it. I, I think it's I think it's an awesome game for broadcasting, uh, particularly because we don't play the non games and like that is just a huge percentage of what we did in Magic. And, you know, I, I'm not here to knock Magic. I love Magic. And there is a lot of great that comes with Magic's system of variants and its system of uh, mana. Like I, I've sung that as a praise of Magic for literally decades now. But there's the truth that when you're broadcasting a magic tournament, you will cover a lot of non games and the highs are really high, but the lows are really low and flesh and blood just felt more consistent, more visceral, more real. Like you just got to very real game states over and over. And look, I am very much aware that sometimes a close game in flesh and blood is nothing but an illusion. Like you leverage your life total. And just because you won a game at one life does not mean actually the game was close. But when you're doing a broadcast, it's very easy to sell it as a close game (laughs) when it's at one life. And that matters a lot. You want to have that tension. You don't want to have predetermined outcomes. Uh, And flesh and blood just presents that all over the place. Beyond just the tremendous strategic depth, it's also uh, a, a very simple game in a lot of ways to cover because usually you're dealing with one discrete combat interaction. That's what you want to talk about. And things can get, you know, complicated for sure. You get into Kano turns or you start dealing with illusionists and you have an arena presence that changes things a bit. But usually there is one discrete interaction going on that offense defense exchange, and it makes for a really nice, compelling broadcast sort of in line with like a baseball broadcast in a lot of ways. And it's fortunate for me because I always modeled my style of magic broadcasting off baseball broadcasting, but I think it applies to flesh and blood 10 times more than it ever did to magic. And there's just a really nice rhythm uh, for casting the games. Yeah. And well, you do an excellent job and, and the baseball broadcasting does come through. I will say that, which is, which is very cool as a baseball fan myself. Now um, uh, one, one question for you in terms of the coverage is there anything you'd like to see improved or changed about flesh and blood coverage or, or, you know, just absolutely. something we can add to it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, this, this game is young. It's, it's nascent. It is expanding rapidly, growing rapidly, adding more and more players, adding more events. Uh, and there's no question that a lot of what we have done in the early days of flesh and blood coverage has been kind of, 
glued together, duct taped together. <laughs> uh, I, I think I want to see more of a focus on really high quality production. I would love to do like news desk type stuff. All, all the things that really are just like the hallmarks of a good broadcast. I just want it to feel more professional, more polished because the gameplay is there. We need to do a job being able to just highlight that gameplay. So, you know, higher quality cameras showing the arena, some type of telestration type deals. All these things are on my wish list and they're things I would love to build towards. Uh, And I think we will continue to build the world of flesh and blood coverage as time goes on. It's just uh, like sometimes the expectations for the game, uh, they they really feel akin to a game that's been around for decades, I think. And I get that because it is so polished and it is so good and people love it so, so much. Uh, they, they want it to kind of be at that state. But, you know, if you are a Magic fan like myself, I don't have to tell you what the first 20 years of Pro Tour coverage looked like. It was not a pretty sight. <laughs> and only really in the last few years have they really hit their stride. 28 years in uh, with a billion dollar brand behind them, have they been able to really start delivering on these kind of epic experiences and uh, more professional polished broadcasts. And do I think we can get to that point? 100%. 100%. I believe we can get there. It is going to take time though. And it's something we have to build up, uh, you know, as we kind of move forward. Yeah, absolutely. Rome wasn't built in the day and uh, we're working on it. We're working on it now. Uh, before we get to some design talk, which uh, I'm very excited to get to, uh, I have a segment in the show called the fresh phase where I ask uh, the guest what their favorites are of a couple different questions here. Uh, if you're mm. game for it, I'm game for Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Hit let's, me. Let's do it. First, uh, who is your favorite hero? Uh, <laughs> this answer changes every time someone asks me it. <laughs> I, I think right now it's Azuri. Prior to Azuri coming on the scene, it was Viserai. Sometimes I still feel like it's Viserai. Like I, I just love playing Viserai. Some days I'm, I feel like a guardian main. Some days... Um, I'm kind of rooting for the underdogs and I'm behind Azalea, but it, it's somewhere in that mish of answers uh, is my favorite hero. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, what is your favorite weapon? It's going to be a controversial one. I'm going to say Rosetta Thorn, and it's not because I think Rosetta Thorn is like, okay, and uh, necessarily a card that should have ever been made, but... <laughs> It is a very satisfying play pattern, a very powerful play pattern. And it sort of informed a lot of my uh, early days with Flesh and Blood. Like it was very much in the Runeblade metagame. And Rosetta Thorn is just, uh, you know, kind of an iconic part of Flesh and Blood to me now. So I, I think that's why I lean that way. It certainly will go down in the annals of Flesh and Blood history. Uh, I, can, yeah. I can tell you that now. Yes, I think it will. <laughs> what is your favorite equipment? Huh. And I really love the assassin equipment. I think Black Tech Whisperers are just such a cool, flavorful piece uh, of that entire year. We could go with Mask as well. Like I, I think either of the two initial assassin equipment really stand out to me. And certainly I bring some bias to that answer. Um, but <laughs> I, I, I just love the gameplay flow. I love all the questions they ask. And uh, again, like mechanical resonance. They feel like they are telling a real story as, as part of their uh, gameplay operations, which I really, really like. Yeah. And they're awesome. And some of the best art in the game as well, I would mm-hmm. say. Agreed. Uh, what is your favorite uh, run of the mill card card you put in your deck, attack action, non-attack action, instant. I'm a sink below fan. It's efficient. <laughs> uh, it, it does everything you want. Fixes a lot of hands. Like as far as just a generic run of the mill, good piece of glue. Sink below has has to get a vote for me. It's been part of almost every flesh and blood deck I've ever registered for an event. So pretty high up there. It's iconic. It is iconic. And you know, funny enough, I was looking at uh, both sink below and like ravenous ravel. Uh, the other day, and I was like, it started to like, I was looking, I was like, oh, this is a classic flesh and blood card, which is like crazy that the game's only, you know, 2019, and I'm already yeah. referring to things as classic cards, which is... No, I, I agree with you 100%. It it does, I mean, I think that's a, a sort of a side effect of growth, right? Like, you think about where flesh and blood was just a few years ago, and how much it's grown, and how much... Uh, our community has grown how much what being a flesh and blood player like what that means has grown i i think 
classifying things as classic makes sense because we're just living in a different world now. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty awesome. Now, <clears throat> Brian, I do want to talk about design because, you know, you, you've, you've been helping with, with uh, LSS and I want to, you know, shed some light on, on what that's been like and, and what it's been like for you and, and for them. Uh, so first off, when did you get in touch with LSS or uh, the uh, vice versa? And when did you get asked or otherwise to help with design? Yeah, so it happened pretty early on in my dalliance with flesh and blood. Uh, like I said, I had dove in pretty wholeheartedly and I was tweeting a bit about it. And uh, also at the same time, I mentioned Star City Games changing its approach to magic coverage and not doing SCG Live anymore, not doing uh, articles anymore. So I just kind of put out a tweet like, hey, certainly open to opportunities in the gaming space kind of just thinking like oh some magic website will reach out to me and i'll probably write for someone else um before i don't know going on to be a lawyer again or whatever it is i was going to do at that point uh and then james reached out to me and was just like moved to new zealand and i'm like well that seems uh like a pretty aggressive start (laughs) but we should at least have a conversation and we did have that conversation it went very well and then I went on to uh, do a kind of consulting contracting role in the development of Dynasty, um, which was my first set that I got to be involved with. And uh, it's funny because like looking back on it now, I don't think I knew enough about Flesh and Blood to actually be all that good at my job. But I didn't know a lot about design, and I think I was able to bring a lot of that to the table and it kind of informed, uh, you know, James's opinion of me and just, uh, I, I guess even with my sort of still nascent knowledge of flesh and blood, I did enough where he was happy with my work and basically reached out to me wanting to make it a full-time thing. And that's kind of the state we are in now. Uh, I am a contractor for LSS that probably, uh, belies my role a little bit. It is quite a bit bigger than just an average contractor. And we'll, we are working on ways to kind of formalize that. But for the time being, I am a, a contractor. Uh, and once we get things a little bit more sorted out and stable, maybe get some visas in place, maybe find a nice house for me to live in in New Zealand, then my role will be a little bit more concrete. Which would be very, very cool. Now, uh, you mentioned that you, you knew enough about design when working on Dynasty. Right. Uh, where did uh, that knowledge of design and, and background design come from? Yeah. So it's something that I had just always been interested in. Like I said, just devouring rules for years and years of all TCGs. And a lot of my magic writing, podcasting uh, stuff was just very much rooted in speaking about the game through a lens of design. And through doing that, people at Wizards of the Coast got familiar with my work and certainly uh, thought they saw something in my writing that was indicative of someone who had good design fundamentals and you know i did some testing with them and they were pretty keen to have me do some work uh on magic so i did eventually do that as a contractor um you know was occasionally flirting with the idea of going to wizards full-time and never quite worked out uh on well kind of my end they didn't they didn't really come to the table with what i was looking for and ultimately i walked away from it but i that's where i got my first break is just kind of uh, consulting on uh, Kamigawa and Neon Dynasty, actually. Interesting. Now, um, were there things about Flesh and Blood that you kind of had ideas about in terms of design, you know, uh, things that you, you felt could be expanded on or improved upon uh, when, when you kind of came on board? No, I, I think the thing that made me want to work on it so much was that, like I said, there was this core language for storytelling. So it wasn't so much that like I wanted to change the way flesh and blood was designed. It was that I wanted to play in the sandbox that was made. And I wanted to tell stories with the rules that were already in place and think about how these really, really elegant, awesome mechanics could be made into new classes, new things. And it was very fortunate that day one uh, of my contract with LSS, I started working on assassin and is it was nice to kind of get a blank slate and that wasn't the initial intention like we had sort of an assassin in the bank that i was brought in to try and uh tune up a little bit and and 
you know, give my thoughts on. And essentially, my thoughts were this is not working and we should look to do something different. And if you guys are comfortable with it, I'd like to propose something. And that kind of snowball conversation was what eventually became Arachne. So I was able to, uh, you know, have a, a really direct, sizable influence uh, and and a way to play in that sandbox right off the bat, like just making an entirely new class. What more can you do in terms of just like being able to express yourself within the rule set? That's as good as it gets, I think. Yeah, and it's pretty incredible. Like Arachne, when Arachne was released, right, or, or spoiled, um, and we got to see the contract mechanic and how it worked, and how you got silver and you can buy back things. It was just like everything like was really clean and made sense. Now I don't know if you can share what the original um, assassin was kind of like uh, that you felt like it didn't work, uh, but uh, if you could, that would be awesome to hear at least a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I'm not going to get into specifics just because there's always a chance that we re revisit a mechanic down the road or we find a way to make it work. Uh, essentially, though, there was like a game state tracking burden with the version we we're working on that was just it made it so it wasn't pleasant to play. Mm. You felt like you were doing uh, some work while you were managing the first version of Assassin. And, you know, maybe someday we'll solve that problem and you'll get to see what the initial uh, look at Assassin was supposed to be like. Yeah, hopefully. Now... What are some challenges uh, that you've uh, kind of faced being uh, behind the scenes with flesh and blood, whether it's it's it's, you know, just how do we make this work or, or does this like the, the, the core game engine doesn't allow for certain things? Yeah, I, th I think the biggest challenge is, is just location at this point. Like I, you know, now fly to Auckland fairly regularly to work with the team. Um, I'm about to take my fourth trip down in a couple of weeks, but uh, that's a long trip. It's uh, sometimes if everything goes well, 16 hours on a plane, when things go nightmarishly, it could lead to a few days on a plane, which is not my favorite. Um, and, you know, I, I'm a big believer in remote work. Like I, I'm a big believer in the quality of life it's brought to people. Uh, and I like doing aspects of my job remotely. But there are some things about design that it's it's just better to be in a room with people and talk things out and play the games face to face. And th that does matter quite a bit. So one of the biggest hurdles has just been my time and being able to be in Auckland as much as I would like to be. Uh, like I said, we are trying to get some more options in place as far as that goes. And I think I'm moving towards a split of my time where I'll probably spend... Uh, a slight majority of my time in Auckland rather than in the States going forward, probably by uh, the end of this year, hopefully. That'd be you know, very exciting. Uh, now, top-down design is something that I heard about, gosh, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. Uh, for the first time, I was playing Magic and Innistrad came out. Um, and that was the first time I was a little bit blown away by uh, the idea of, oh, we want to think about what this is and then figure out what the game would do to what that is. Right. So um, how important, and you know, I've, I have a feeling I know, I, I know what the answer is going to be based on the conversation already. How important is top-down design to you with flesh and blood? Tremendous. It's tremendously important. Look, if you're not telling a story with these cards, they're, they're just numbers. That's mm -hmm. the, that's the essence of card games. If there is not something there, if there's not resonance. If there's not something you can cling to as a person that says, you know, this hero speaks to me, this specialization speaks to me, this piece of equipment, I understand what it's trying to convey. If you can't do that, you're never going to get that level of buy-in that actually makes a great game. You might get people participating in your game. They might play your tournaments and, uh, you know, try and take a few dollars from your game. That can absolutely happen. But if you're going to make an actual impassioned fan base like Flesh and Blood now has, so much of it is rooted in good fundamentals of design top-down design being a huge huge part of that yeah and you know it's it's been a home run at least from my uh perspective here with with flesh and blood so far i mean i think flick knives is one i always go back to i'm like well oh we want to flick knives what would it do it would do this and i was like oh that's beautiful um <laughs> now uh in terms of uh game design with with flesh and blood, have you kind of developed any kind of like core philosophies? Like, you know, when you sit down, uh, do you have like these mental checks on, on, on what you're doing with a card or, or kind of like a, a class or even a, um, a mechanic? I'm sure I do. 
I don't know that they're actually like tangible checks I could put into words, though. I'm 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 just sure there's a process I mentally go through as I'm looking through a card and like sort of entering the card's text in our internal tools. And there's always like a level of just review and then re-review and then read it in this form and read it in that form and think about it in this context. And uh, it's not rehearsed. It's not like, oh, I'm going to put it through this 10 step process and then I'll come off the other side with a card. But certainly there's a lot of things I fall back on and just a lot of principles I'm starting to fall back on. Like now, you know, over a year of experience, designing flesh and blood I, i'm i'm starting to feel finally like i have this knowledge vault i remember just like the first few times i was working with james and just being like oh my god his wealth of knowledge is massive like how can i ever contribute when this man has like 10 years of ideas welled up in his head uh at 10 years of heuristics 10 years of oh i know this won't work so we've done it before like how can i ever get myself up to that level of competency um i'm finally starting to feel like i'm there now and it's not a, about like specific things. It's just about I've tried enough stuff, done enough stuff, seen enough stuff at this point that I'm, I'm getting a sense of what we can and cannot do successfully. But the game system still surprises me sometimes. And I think that's, again, a really great thing about it is we continue to find new, exciting, innovating, innovative things to do, uh, both within kind of the four corners of the card, uh, you know, in formats more broadly speaking, I think we're just doing a good job of continuing to push the bounds of what the game's capable of. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I think, uh, at a very distant view, you could look at the game, right. You know, and I've heard people say this like, well, you know, it's, it's fours and threes and, and, and that's what it is. Uh, how can they expand on that yet? they continue to do it. So it, it is, uh, it's, it's very cool that, that, that even kind of gives, uh, like this little, uh, playground, uh, for, yeah. for, for design. You know, to that point, I remember once, uh, listening to my friends over at Arsenal pass who I, uh, love dearly, both of them. And I remember, I think it was Brendan said something to the effect of like, Oh, how many two for sixes can you make? And I'm like, uh, 20,000 like I, I, <laughs> all day and just rattle off interesting two for sixes like it, it's not about the two for six like yeah those numbers are uh you know pretty locked and you have to do some work to get away from those numbers but the stories that those cards are telling what they're accomplishing I it feels like an infinite canvas to me it really does yeah, yeah, it, it, it's pretty incredible. Now, in terms of the canvas, have have there any um, have there been any ideas that have been left on the cutting floor, and uh, perhaps some that you are itching to revisit at some point? Uh, so many. I mean, we're just <laughs> like honestly, we're ruthless with our approach to uh, cycling through ideas. We're a very, very big believers in fast moving iteration. Uh, so you know, sometimes an idea that seems like it has really good promise off the back. We'll spend a couple days in development and just not hit right. And it, then it's gone. We're not going to like, y- you have to be willing to accept your mistakes, not try and force things. And at, at the same time, like it's all about balance. So sometimes you do have to force things. You have to lean in really hard, but there's just been so many things that we have left on the cutting room floor at this point. And I, I always leave open the door to go back to them. I think it's really important to just like uh, not take biases for, from previous failures and just be open to the idea like, okay, this did not work in this scenario, but maybe five years down the road, this card's going to be the perfect thing. And we have, you know, databases and data banks full of ideas that we'll explore at a future point and see if they make the cut uh, in their second third, fourth, fifth, sixth, go- whatever it is. I mean, I've, I've seen some cards get many, many tries at this point, And just because they didn't make it six times doesn't mean they won't make it the seventh time. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Now we have Dust Till Dawn coming out here in a month, basically. Uh, what are you, and I know you, you can't give specifics here, but in, in a general sense, what are you most excited for people to see in Dust Till Dawn? And can you hint? I think it's just really exciting to to bring back a couple classes that have been out of the game for a while, like uh, a new Light Illusionist, a new Shadow Rune Blade. Those are beloved classes uh, in some instances, hated, <laughs> hated by others. Uh, maybe polarizing classes is a better way to put it. Yeah. Um, but that's good. That's kind of what engenders that fierce loyalty and sometimes that fierce hatred and all of that is part of a TCG and I think uh, bringing these classes back into the mix is a really exciting moment in our game and it's just like 
it really is the fruition of the living legend system, right? Like, again, talking about classic flesh and blood, but we're in it now. We're in it now for over three years, and we're starting to see the vision come to light of uh, these heroes having really strong performances over the course of multiple years, and then they kind of go away for a while. We get our break from Light Illusionist. We get our break from Shadow Rune Blades. They sit on the bench for a little bit. And then they come back. And I think, like, hopefully what's becoming clear is that this is a game worth buying into for the long term. And I don't mean that from a dollars and cents perspective. I mean it from a, oh, I love Light Illusionist, but there's no Light Illusionist for me right now. And I am receptive to that feedback. And I, I do know that can be frustrating. But I hope you found something to occupy your time in the non-Light Illusionist days. And now with Light Illusionist coming back, all those fans of Prism can be absolutely over the moon to return to the hero they love. And I hope it feels a little special to them when it happens. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, based on the reactions I've seen so far, I think, well, the Light Illusionist fans are certainly excited. Um, I can't say the same for a lot of other people, but hopefully we'll it's a different experience. Um, now, we've, we've explored... I promise you a different experience. How about that? I'm yeah. going to say that. Thank you. Thank you. You heard it here first, folks. Uh, now, uh, we've, we've explored quite a few regions of Wraith at this point. Uh, some we have not hit yet. Which region of Wraith are you uh, most excited to uh, visit? I am really excited for a region that I don't think anyone knows about. Huh. That's what I'll say. Oh. <laughs> okay. All right. That's okay. As close as I can give to uh, any information about it. But, uh, you know, we, we're learning more about the world of Wraith all the time, I think. I, and I am very excited to learn about that uh, place whenever we do learn about it. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, I, I do have some listener questions here brian if you're willing to uh answer some absolutely these come from the buds discord great place to uh hang out for anybody listening please check it out it is in the show notes free to join uh first comes from my co-host on the bud rush bellow gary aka mr viz who asks which card from outsiders was your favorite in limited testing and limited testing huh <laughs> I, again, I, I think this is like probably a weird answer, but I would go Fleet Foot Sandals. And I know like that's a card that is not very good, uh, but it can be in the right <laughs> spots. And like finding the spots where that card succeeded was a very, very cool part of my Outsiders experience. And uh, I, I do think there is a lot of joy in finding a card that is really bad like it's just not a good card uh, it gets clear <laughs> on its face it does so many things worse than so many other cards out there but like it does something it's important in specific spots and finding those spots was a real joy of the limited experience for me so that ranks very very high i put be be like water up there as well i think be like water was a really critical part of just unlocking the ninja class for limited and and making it feel really good yeah yeah i mean fleetwood sandals that's that's I did not expect that answer, and I'm glad it was. I believe that. <laughs> uh, next, we have a question from Crixus, who asks, from a game design standpoint, what are the biggest concerns with balancing when providing support to uh, classes that you know need it? Uh, and he says, for example, more brute, brute blue sixes, which you know at this point <laughs> we all know the answer to that one. Yeah, I I question whether brute needs blue sixes. I'll say that, but they could stand to be better. And I think, again, we move through the progression of Flesh and Blood. We have three years under our belt now. And I hope people are starting to get the picture that if your hero is bad, it will not always be bad. That is not how this works. It's not like they get left behind forever. They might get left behind for a period of time. You might have some lean days. Go talk to the Azalea Cult when you feel bad <laughs> about your hero's lean days as they sat there for over two years begging for their hero to be able to get a single solitary living legend point. Just one. That's all they wanted. Just <laughs> one point. And now Azalea is a very, very strong hero, a very uh, important part of the metagame, maybe becoming a more important important part of the metagame as we move past the oldham days so uh patience is my my first thing i want to say to those people but in terms of like what we worry about it's just making sure we are able to deliver uh 
a power spike to those heroes while staying true to who they are. We don't want to invalidate what makes a hero themselves. We want to uh, find a way for them to succeed in kind of their core operating procedures. And I think Azalea has done that. Like, uh, again, huge dominated arrows. That's that's Azalea's M.O. She is leveraging red in the ledger. We didn't have to make a ranger sword for Azalea to go be good after a, a lot of talk of how rangers could never be competitive because their bow is such a limitation. Uh, the bow is a limitation, but it's core to the ranger class. And I, I think we did a really good job of just staying true to those rangers and still delivering a nice little power spike for them. And I'd say the same for uh, Ninja as well. I, I mean, like Katsu hasn't had quite the limelight of the rangers in the post outsider world. Um, but I, I do think we did a good job staying true to what ninjas are. And I think Katsu got quite a bit better. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, next question comes from uh, Mike Popovich, Papa Mike, uh, who asked, people often say Brian when they are really referring to the LSS dev team. Did you anticipate becoming the face of the dev team when you started working for LSS? I wouldn't say I anticipated it, but I was aware it was a probable outcome. I, I mean, I think like, only recently did the flesh and blood uh, Twitter account pass me in terms of followers. So where like I have reach equal to the core game account, it's pretty self-evident that when I say things, it's going to uh, reach as many people as possible. So I, it wasn't my intention, but I knew it was very much a possibility. And it was something I was comfortable with because it's really hard to be a person on the internet, like of, just a, a moderate cue list niche <laughs> micro celebrity is one of the worst fates any human can endure. Like it's really, really tough. You have to be really careful. And if you don't know how to do it, it can be scary. It can be overwhelming and you can do some real damage. And I kind of know how to do it and I'm still capable of doing some real damage. So I, I think it is good that someone came along with some reach that was able to talk about these things. And I think it's been an important part of just uh, opening up our dialogue with our players and letting them know like we are thinking about the same things you are. We are we are here. We are listening. We are following. Uh, we don't always agree with your stance, but we're receptive to it. We're considering it. And I, I think that is a critical, critical, critical part of just game design in general these days. I think it's very, very important whether you make video games, TCGs, tabletop games, you have to be engaging with your audience where they are. And I think being part of Twitter and engaging like a somewhat typical Twitter user with all the faults that carries with it. I think that's an important part of uh, representing the game. And there's things I could do better. I'll say that. But ultimately, I am genuine, probably to a fault. And I hope people, uh, you know, will give me grace in the moments where I, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe take things a little bit too far. Uh, you know what? You're a passionate guy, and passion is a good thing. And that is that is the truth. That's that's all that matters. Now, the next question comes from uh, it's pronounced Visarai on on uh, Discord, uh, who asks, "Does arcane damage have a separate cost balance than physical attacks? What considerations do developers have to make when designing wizard cards?" Hmm. I mean, it definitely operates on a very different axis, right? Like, like certainly, I think at this point, everyone sort of knows the meme about the formula and uh, has moved on from that actually being a real thing as it's pretty demonstrably not. I, w I wish it was. It would make my life a lot simpler if I just had a formula I could go plug in to make flesh and blood cards. Um, so there's no formula for making arcane damage cards, but it's a totally different set of considerations. You have to think of uh, certainly a lot of the things that interact with arcane damage, arcane barrier, uh, you know, spell void uh, all these damage prevention effects like you really have to consider how widely available are they are they being played what happens to the dynamic of this matchup when you're uh, asking players to change their equipment suite and account for these things like all these things are very very important so i do think arcane damage is quite a bit harder to design around there's a lot more considerations uh, but there's there's no real shortcuts to that it's just you have to feel it out get the numbers in the right place uh, and i think we've done a really good job with wizards thus far. Like, I think they're very unique. Uh, you know, the moments where they are extremely powerful, they can feel like a lot for sure. But I uh, really like the spot that Icelander has 
found herself in in classic constructed throughout her existence. And certainly she's taken some tweaks, some nerfs to get to a point where now she's, uh, I, I don't even know that I believe she's on the lower power side. Like I think she has a couple bad matchups, but I, I still think she's a very real hero. And, uh, you know, maybe with this latest metagame change might even be a larger part of the metagame, but I, I really like how she's influenced the game over her time present. And even Kano, I, I love Kano as the wild card. Just like, Check them. Make sure they're being honest. Make sure they're bringing their arcane barrier to the pro. And if they're not, uh, punish them. And I, I think that's a good feature to have in your game. And certainly, again, how many people love playing wizards? Like it's a, a really, really uh, big identity point for our players, and we want to continue to preserve that. So it's, it's a lot of work, but it's worth it, is what I would say when it comes to costing and balancing arcane damage. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the next question is kind of on the other end of the spectrum here you got wizards big brain and now sigma asks how hard is it to balance brute which is you know simple to the point like brute um how do you it's all hard yeah I mean, it's all hard. this is easy like, <laughs> i wish it was easy uh, it's hard to balance flesh and blood and we're gonna mess things up that's just how it's gonna go i i promise you there'll be another mistake uh a starvo level mistake at some point it's just gonna happen and that it is what it is um but Brute in particular, I don't find it harder to balance than any other class. I think it's got uh, some terms of engagement that mean it's harder for it to be the best deck. But I'll say that's okay, too. Not every hero has to be a metagame dominator. I do think every hero has to have its moment in the sun, has to be viable, probably should be the best deck for a tournament. And I think there's moments where Brute has been the best deck for tournaments. Like, that's not something that's necessarily failed at particularly in blitz where Reiner are extremely explosive uh and then even if you look at like you know the post world's calling won by chandler toe on reinar like that's that's a big result for reinar and reinar has won many big tournaments so uh i i think brute is not easy it takes a specific mindset to play it takes a really really talented mindset to play well and i think people often want it to be just kind of unga bunga smash and that is that is not how brute works um but it is a lot of fun to kind of bring tools to the brute class and uh just like every other class they're gonna have their moment they'll they'll get there well i'm i'm, I'm hoping for some leviah um tools soon um <laughs> next uh, question comes from dead summer who asks uh how often do you collaborate with the creative team creatives team when designing cards what is the process you all take when wanting to implement specific lore or flavor into mechanics of a card yeah so a lot a lot of that happens um james is very much like the liaison between creative and the design development team um so it's it's not often i work directly with the creative team it kind of just gets passed back and forth but certainly uh there is a lot of back and forth that goes on where you know design development will be like oh we want to make a hero that does this thing and then we talked creative about it and they're like well it could work in this way and they go well, what if the hero did this and you know in, in some ways we do get to have our little moments of contributing to creative and it, it's really exciting uh, it's one of my favorite parts of the job actually when i get to have you know it's nice to design the mechanics of a hero but for some reason i still get more excited when i get a little input on the story of a hero and exactly what's going on and how the hero has reached a particular state and uh, we could talk more about that in about a year probably <laughs> i'll have a, a more fulsome story to tell oh nice nice well i hope you'd like to come back then uh i do want to add a uh a question to that riptide uh mm -hmm. the hook anchor thing right he's holding it you know, was there ever any thoughts of giving them some kind of hook anchor thing to play around with? Or was that just f pure flavor? Uh, yeah, I mean, we've talked about it. Ultimately, uh, the hook is like kind of a trap, right? Okay. Like, I, I mean, that that's what it's supposed to represent is just he, like he uses that to ensnare his victims. And I understand like you see it and you're like, ooh, that looks like a weapon. Yeah. And people get very excited about it. And, you know, who's to say maybe one day that'll be paid off. Um but it wasn't like a, a core part of the hero identity or anything like that. It is just a, a representation of the hero, which came out awesome, I think, by the way. And Riptide already amassing legions of fans, oh, yeah. uh, despite being the newest ranger to take up that mantle at the bottom of the metagame. But lots of Riptide supporters out there. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, next uh, question comes from Capolo, who says, Brian, as a fellow squirrel fan, are there any squirrels in the world of Wraith? Will we see either animal heroes or animal allies, not dragons, in the future? I would love to get some squirrels into the world of Wraith. I don't know <laughs> the biology all that well, whether they're presently there. I'll see if I can drop them off or something like that. Um, I, I will do my part to see more animals in Wraith. Of course, I am an animal lover. I think that's clear to anyone who follows me. And uh, you should know, I would, I would love to see animals in Wraith. So we'll see what we can do. And uh, to wrap it up in the animal theme, uh, we have uh, two questions, one from Greg, our producer, and one from Flake. Uh, Greg asks, pond life update, you know, anything, anything fun happening out there in upstate New York? And uh, where is the peacock from Flake? Yeah, so I just captured a snapping turtle this morning. I posted it over on my Twitter page, which is a really exciting development about... Uh, probably about eight months ago now, we saw a giant, giant snapping turtle wandering through our yard and we captured him and rehomed him because uh, snapping turtles can be very detrimental to the ecosystem of a pond. I'm starting to suspect that may have been a lady snapping turtle and she may have left some friends in my pond because I was sort of raking along the shore today and I happened to dug up a little snapping turtle and I grabbed him. He very nearly Almost got my finger, which is not a joke. Like you can lose a finger to a snapping turtle 100 uh, percent. So after I narrowly dodged a snapping turtle attack, I went and got a shovel and scooped him up and uh, put him in a bucket and rehomed him to we, we have a, a relative's property about 10 minutes down the road. And anything we capture, we just kind of rehome on this property where <laughs> nobody lives. It's just wooded property. Um, and, but there's water there. And so we've dropped off about six groundhogs. Uh, one giant snapping turtle, now a second small snapping turtle. Uh, I think that's it for the list of animals we've we've currently contributed uh, to that property. But that was the big pond thing for today. As far as the peacock, it has not been spotted since its one appearance. And I was in Auckland when the peacock came. Uh, I had some staying at my house, and they sent me the videos of the peacock waltzing by on my my security footage. And uh, I, I didn't really understand what's happening. I still do not understand what happened, but that there's a peacock out there somewhere and maybe it'll come by again. We'll see. I hope it does. I hope it does. Me now, too. Brian, uh, I, I had a blast talking to you. This was awesome. I want to thank you for giving me your time and, and, and agreeing to come on. It's been it's been excellent. Your wealth of knowledge. I do hope you come back soon. Um, and I hope that, you know, your travels to Auckland are all great. Uh, can you please uh, plug anything you'd like to plug? And uh, yeah, thank you. It's just flesh and blood, man. Just keep playing flesh and blood. That's all, that's all I really care about at this point. You know, I have podcasts and socials and all that stuff. Um, but ultimately, so much of my work and life is devoted to this game. And I know all your listeners are out there playing it. And I appreciate it so, so much. I think you are uh, allowing not only myself, but like the whole team to really live a dream right now. Like we're developing and uh, producing this game that we all genuinely love. We love playing. We love designing. We love talking about it. And uh, the flesh and blood fans are what make that possible. And like, I just am blown away by how passionate flesh and blood fans are. It, It is become a real fan base so so quickly and you know it's one thing to enjoy a card game there's certainly many card games that are enjoyed this is a fan base though these are people who enjoy the heroes they enjoy the lore they enjoy the social scene they enjoy the cosplay there's so many aspects to our game uh that are just growing so rapidly and that is because of people like you people like your listeners so i am just thankful i don't want to plug anything just keep Keep enjoying the game. Keep letting me know what we can do better. That's all I ask for. Well, thank you very much. And I will be putting your your socials in the show notes for anybody who is interested. Brian's awesome. And you should follow him on Twitter, at least to see the animals. My God. Um, yeah, I think that's the main upside. <laughs> Everything else is sort of throwaway, but there are good animals that come across. Um, and uh, you all can continue to find me on Twitter at FreshBudsPod. Uh, like, comment, subscribe on the YouTube. Check out the Discord. Check out the Patreon. That's all in the show notes in the link tree below. Uh, we're, we're getting closer to 500 subscribers on the YouTube, finally pushing that a little bit. Once we hit that, I will be doing a full Levi adult cosplay, and that will be Do a it. ton I of fun. See it. <laughs> I am terrified. Now, Brian, Let's I was... Before Dust Till Dawn. Let's see. Let's <laughs> see if we can hit Levi cosplay before Dust Till Dawn. I'm, I'm hoping. I'm hoping. Um, now, I always like to end the show talking a little bit about food. I would like you to 
feature some food that you're enjoying right now, something local to you, something you've had in your travels, anything that maybe even you're just hungry for currently. I'm a pizza fanatic. I could always talk about pizza, uh, probably too much. Honestly, <laughs> I should eat less pizza. Uh, today, I wandered over to a local farm stand and they had some fresh made tamales that I had for lunch, which were excellent. Uh, love our local tamale place. And uh, I am just an absolute food adorer to my own detriment. So if anyone has tips for not loving food so much, that's actually what I am currently interested in. Uh, it's, it's why do they make it so good if you're not supposed to eat it all? I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. It does not. It doesn't. <laughs> well, thank you again, Brian. Uh, we ran out of time for Charmer, but we'll get to him next week, I'm sure. Everybody, please have a good week.